Every once in a while, you come across someone who just seems to have been born in the wrong place or the wrong time. That was Susan Butcher. I can tell you from the first moment that I landed in the plane in Alaska, I felt at home for the first time in my life. Susan Butcher was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the 1950s, but she had a spirit meant for the wilderness, and she made her way there as quickly as she could. The more remote, the better. Butcher became, for years, the dominant figure in the world of sled dog racing. She was the first person to win three Iditarods in a row, four total during her career. And she was a member of the first team to summit Mount McKinley, now called Denali, with a dog team. Butcher died of leukemia when she was just 51, and now every year, the grueling thousand-mile Iditarod across Alaska kicks off on what's officially known as Susan Butcher Day. The race is underway right now as I record this episode, but whether you followed the sport or not, Susan Butcher's stories about living out her destiny with her beloved dogs are utterly fascinating and inspiring. Forget Jack London. We've got the real Call of the Wild on What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam A., this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Susan Butcher was 20 when she arrived in the Alaskan wilderness. She'd already spent time in rural Colorado and Maine and Canada, so she thought she was prepared. She wasn't. A friend and myself flew out uh, where our, the closest town was probably 200 miles away, the closest road 70 miles away, and our closest neighbor 40 miles away. I just took four dogs, that's all I could afford to buy. I bought them each for $50 a piece. And some dog food for them, a sack of flour, a slab of bacon, and a jar of peanut butter, and that was it. And this was gonna be for six months, knowing that this was not enough food, that we were gonna have to live off the land. Um, I made a number of ridiculous mistakes. The most typical would be just misjudging the vastness of the Alaskan wilderness and misjudging that there is absolutely no help out there for you um, if you have any problems. The stupidest was absolutely the day we were flown in in uh, the little single engine plane. Uh, the pilot dumped me and the dogs, it was a plane on skis, the lake was frozen, um, out on the lake and flew away. And I had only owned the dogs, they were little four month old puppies for about a week and individually they were really good at being let loose and coming to me. I was learning to train them 
uh, just my necessary um, obedience commands. So I let all four of them loose. I thought this was a great idea. <laughs> and I started toting the things over to the small log cabin that was gonna be our home. And pretty soon I looked up and no dogs around. Well, I was wearing, because I was doing so much work carrying all this stuff over to a quarter of a mile to the cabin, that I was down to a light sweater and a turtleneck. She thought she probably had on long underwear, but she definitely did not have on a hat or mittens. And this was late November. In Alaska, you can get 50 and 60 below um, at that time of year. We were probably at about zero or 10 below during the day. So I decided I'm gonna take off. I didn't even tell my friend where I was going to. I mean, I thought I was gonna go around the bend and find the dogs and I went off calling their names and whistling and everything else following their footprints. Well, around dusk, I had not found them. I was two mountain valleys over. Um, I was starting to get really cold. The temperature was dropping phenomenally. It was probably at least 30 below and I was getting seriously cold and really worried about the dogs and was kind of coming to the point of, do I follow, continue and find them or do I go back, but it's really dark and can I even find my way back and realizing I have made a really serious, stupid judgment call. So what I did was I brought the sweater up around my head and over my arms, luckily it was a large sweater, and kind of got into that and just said, I think perhaps as long as I can find the dogs in a reasonable time, that is my only out because they can find our way back to the uh, lake. Another half hour passed. She was having trouble in the dusk telling the difference between dog tracks and wild animal tracks, and she was worried the puppies were on the trail of a moose. But then finally, one of the pups came to her and the others soon after. They had stayed in a pack. And being terrified of them running off again, I took off my turtleneck and left just my sweater on and used the turtleneck as a leash for two. Now, I was mistaken in that because they were as excited to see me as I was them. They, they were four-month-old puppies, and they said, where have you been? So we were all happy to be reunited. Um, and luckily, though, the extra physical effort that I had to do to hold two dogs on a leash and to quickly follow them at a dog's pace back to the lake kept me very heated and I made it back. But this was a stupid error and uh, could have turned out as badly as I have seen many Chichacos go. Uh, many uh, people who first come to the state have froze to death a um, hundred yards from a cabin. She may have come perilously close to meeting her maker that first day, but she wasn't deterred one bit. In fact, quite the opposite. One of the most appealing things about living off the grid for Butcher was learning to live according to the rhythms of nature and weather and rediscovering human nature unaltered by modern life. When Susan Butcher spoke to filmmaker Irv Drasnin for the Academy of Achievement in 1991, she said she didn't know how old she was when Alaska entered her consciousness, but she did remember, even as a two-year-old, feeling unhappy with her surroundings. In the first grade, my mother is saved. Those two-liners that you do on those big pieces of paper that said, I hate the city, I love the country. As I got a little bit more sophisticated, they became compositions explaining what 
was negative about society that had created these cities and what was positive about country life and how it kept the stress um, off of people and animals by living in the country. It was really um, interesting that I would have those thoughts <laughs> so strongly. I mean, how do you account for that? I mean, it's such a young age. It is interesting. I really feel we are born with things that are really innate in us. And I was born with a very strong love for animals. Butcher's first pet dog growing up was a Siberian husky whose mother, she was told, had been a sled dog in Alaska. That bit of info was enough to plant a seed. The Iditarod race didn't even exist yet, but that seed kept growing roots. When I got my second dog, and I was living in my mother's house in Cambridge, and she said, you will not get a second dog. I won't let you have two dogs in the house. Instead of saying, okay, I won't get a second dog, I got my second dog and moved out. <laughs> Butcher had always been a determined, tough, even pig-headed little kid who, according to family lore, laughed in her father's face when he got angry with her, took whatever punishment she was given, and gaily skipped away. She was a force and had the courage of her convictions, but what she didn't have was a great role model. I was frustrated with the lack of female role models as a child and wondered why I wanted to do many things that at that time weren't very typical for a woman to be doing. And so I think I had to learn at about 15 that I was going to have to set my own path. Her path at that time pointed her toward becoming a country veterinarian, but she was dyslexic and college was daunting, so she became a veterinary tech instead for three years. I love veterinary medicine. It's very interesting to me. But I could see it wasn't what I wanted to spend my whole life doing, being inside of a building doing veterinary work. I wanted to be outside. So, yes, I would say there was a, a, an overall point in my life that when I moved to Alaska, started dog mushing, um, I found that it wasn't so much that it brought me such sublime happiness, but total contentment. I was, for the first time in my life, content. And I never missed anything else. I never wished I was doing anything else. Um, there were many unhappy times for me. I lived alone for nine years. Um, following my dream, there were some very lonely times. There were some very difficult times. I was often living alone with my closest neighbor 40 miles away. It was tough times for me, but I was never discontented. I was totally content and very, I have to say, happy. So there was this point that I remember trying to explain this to my family. <laughs> my parents were not thrilled that I didn't go on to college and that I went up to Alaska to mush dogs. I think that like many parents, they think this is a stage she's going through, so they weren't unsupportive. This was, this is a neat thing to do, Susan. And when are you coming back? <laughs> and so finally they saw though how happy I was up there, how dedicated I was to what I was doing, and that they probably weren't gonna see me back down here living. And so there really is something, um, and I don't wanna become mystical about this, but it's something that I don't completely understand, which was really there was this person born in me that absolutely should have been born in Alaska or should have been born 50 years before or 100 years before where I could have been a pioneer. That's all there is to it. 
I was born with the pioneering spirit. When she arrived in Alaska in 1975, the Iditarod was just three years old. It was created by folks who wanted to revive interest in an historic trail. Back in the 1920s, settlers traveled the Iditarod Trail in winter to get from village to village. It's how they got their mail and their supplies. They didn't have planes or snowmobiles, obviously, so in the winter, dogs and sleds were the only option. Susan Butcher's timing in 1975 was excellent, but she wasn't ready to race yet. First, she had to figure out how to make enough money to survive, which wasn't easy to do in the Alaskan bush. The economic problem was amazing. I was 20 years old when I went up there. Um, My first job, I would get a summer job and make between 600 and a thousand dollars during the summer and that had to support me and my dogs for the winter well luckily in the beginning only had four finally i had 11 and i was living mostly off the land i was eating moose um, myself and the dogs i was making a mixture of cornmeal and rabbit and whatever i could get so i did have very few expenses so i made it through the early years until i started racing When I started racing, that is just a huge expense. The added uh, high nutrition you have to be feeding them, the added equipment that you need. And so my first race, I went about $5,000 in debt. Then I started going into the salmon industry. And I would work um, what we call 718, seven days a week, 18 hours a day, making very decent money. So I could usually bring myself up to close to zero in my bank balance getting ready to go into the next racing season to spend five, ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars preparing for the race. The more competitive I got, the more money I had to spend. And so I got as badly as thirty thousand dollars in debt and it did become um, scary and yet I never would scrimp one penny on what I fed the dogs. The dogs were often getting a pound, a pound and a half of meat a day when I didn't have enough money to buy more than two or three pounds of meat for myself for the entire winter. So there were really some rough times for me where I was definitely short of food and I wondered was I ever going to be able to get over the hump. But I just always had this faith, one in myself and two in my dream and vision, that it was all going to come to pass. Butcher asked the founder of the Iditarod race to tutor her and help her get started as a musher. She made her first run in 1978 and came in 19th out of 34. The next year, she came in 9th. By her fifth year, when she came in 2nd, she won a good bit of prize money in her first sponsorship deal. That's when she realized she could actually live off dog mushing as long as she spent all of her time raising the dogs right and winning races. So she quit the salmon business for good and became a professional dog musher, one of the first. Now, Susan Butcher was careful during this 1991 interview to explain the difference between recreational mushers and racers. There are thousands of people around the world who keep three or 10 or 20 dogs and feed them the same way they'd feed a pet. Those are your recreational mushers. They don't need to be very sophisticated about training because their dogs are magnificent and figure it out quickly. And of course, they're not pulling a sled a thousand miles full of supplies 
through some of the most inhospitable terrain in the world. But to be a racer is a totally different thing. They are no longer dogs. They are professional athletes. And so they need all the sports medicine in addition to the regular veterinary medicine. They need the best nutrition possible. They need training on a daily basis from the age of one or two days old till the time that you retire them. I'm going to tell you now what it is taking me to be able to win the Iditarod here in the early 90s. And that means I have to train at least 11 and a half months a year. And this is basically seven days a week. Uh, I am training myself through running, cycling, a weightlifting program, and then for about nine months of the year, eight to nine months of the year, I'm on a sled and I'm mushing 50 to 70 miles a day. And then in addition to caring for the dogs and hauling the water from the creek, we still don't have running water and heating with wood and stuff. My lifestyle is keeping me fit. As far as the dogs go, from the time that the dogs are four months of age, they go in harness, pulling either a sled in the wintertime or a four-wheeled cart in the summertime, three to four times a week for the rest of their lives. So each dog in my kennel needs to go three to four times a week as puppies, say two to 10 miles, and as they advance from 10 to 90 miles a day. And then probably foremost interest and importance to me would be the mental training, the trust that I develop with them, the winning spirit that I enhance in them and bring forward. And so I am really looking for the mental athlete when I pick my pups. I do not always pick the best physical specimen if it doesn't have that extra athletic heart. Susan Butcher never saw the dogs as just her racing champions or her livelihood. They were also her best friends, her co-workers, and her family, especially during the many years she lived alone, 40 miles from the nearest human. One of her lasting contributions to the Iditarod and the sport of mushing was to lift the standard of care and training and respect for the dogs. The most important thing that I believe my job is, is to train my dogs a trust and be trusted relationship. And this starts with working with the puppies to train them to always trust me. That I will never ask them to go any farther or faster than they're capable of. And yet every day, in some way, I will challenge them perhaps to go a little bit farther than they know they're capable of doing. However, if they show me that they're not, I'm there to comfort them, to praise them, to give them whatever they need. If they do accomplish it, I'm there to praise them. This I do sometimes just with running the puppies loose, sometimes in the dog team, however it's done. That trust is fairly easy to give to them. The other side they have to learn is that I need to trust in them, that they are smarter in the wilderness than I am, and that they, I will many times have to depend on their knowledge. And one of the first ways I found this out was after just two years of living in Alaska. And I was traveling on a trail I'd been using all winter long, which crossed a frozen river. And my lead dog, Tekla, at the time, um, took off to the right. I told her to go back onto the trail. She took off to the right again. And this dog had never disobeyed me. And I could not understand why she was trying to do it. So finally, I gave her her head, and she pulled the team off to the side of the trail just as the trail 
collapsed into the river and we all would have drowned. So she had a sixth sense that saved our lives. And so it's this mutual trust, theirs in my guidance and mine in their ability and instincts in the wilderness that has saved our lives many times. You might not find it so surprising to learn then that four years after this interview, when Susan Butcher had her first child, a daughter, she named her Tekla, after the dog that once saved her from an icy death. Susan Butcher's relationship with her dogs was at times so profound that it bordered on eerie. It was something, she said, she could have only discovered after living many years away from civilization. The dogs are all animals, but I will speak very specifically for the dogs that live in the wilderness, are so capable of six senses and things that are totally amazing to us. But if you live with them long enough, you become capable of most of the same things. And a lot of people would call these things ESP, or reading each other's minds and things. But they aren't farces. They are real and they're legitimate and they can be developed because we had them. We just lose them. But what is happening with me is I develop perhaps a rapport with my lead dog where no longer do I have to say the words G for right or ha for left. I can just think it. And the dog goes G and ha. To the extent that if I have been using a trail to the left, ha, for um, a month and never going to the right. And perhaps there's even a new fall of snow. So it would be very odd for this dog to take that trail. I will think G and that dog will go G. And this has to be a dog that I'm working with immensely. You know, I couldn't just take uh, any one of my puppies and and do this. It's a relationship that you develop, but you learn how to read each other's thoughts. There's another thing I've learned of having radar. So this has happened to me at at least well over a thousand times, so I know that it really happens. When we're mushing along in the race with this lack of sleep, you do do that thing that, that everybody has experienced while driving, where you're kind of doing this, and you're not even sure how long you've been asleep or awake for. With the dog mushing on a fairly good trail, you might even have been asleep a minute or two minutes or, or two seconds. Uh, but at any rate, your eyes are shut and you are asleep. And the, tr- the trails are not brushed back well. There are often trees and things in the way that could hit you at any length. And I can be asleep, uh, eyes shut, and a, and a radar is all I can call it, will spot the tree that is about to hit me and not I do not wake up in time to see it and duck I duck before I'm really awake turn around and I have just missed a branch and has happened literally thousands of times so this is something that I have never experienced before (laughs) you know that uh, you can come in contact with things that uh, we lose by using all the technology So there's a gain and a loss to the technology. Um, So it isn't that I think that everyone should live in the wilderness, but I do think to have experienced a little bit of it does give people a closer understanding um, of some of their own human nature. What humans are capable of is on vivid display at the Iditarod. It was an extreme sport long before the term came into being. 
dangling branches and drowning aren't the only dangers by a long shot. Filmmaker Irv Drasnan asked Butcher to describe what it's like in the middle of the race. For the musher, um, the most difficult aspect is the lack of sleep. And it is an ongoing and constant thing that you are aware of. We are getting between one and two hours of sleep a day for um, perhaps 11 to 13, 14 day race. Most people think that fact in itself would make this an extremely grueling, totally uncomfortable race. Then you add to it the cold. We are often as cold as 50 below. You have the windstorms, you have the snowstorms, you have a lot of elements that are causing what most people view as discomfort. But again, the thing to remember is that we live in that all year round. And although, yes, I am very, very cold at 50 below, and even as good as I have learned to dress in those temperatures, I'm not going to say I'm completely comfortable. Yet, uh, I know how to deal with them, and I'm not miserable. Although sometimes you are, but I'm often not miserable. So the thing that I think is important for me to say is that the country we're going through is so magnificent and beautiful. And even though I've gone through this same country many, many, many times, it is never anything less than spectacular. And it is always changing. Every 20, 30, or 40 miles, you've come into a totally new terrain. Maybe you're in some really tall mountains. Um, the Alaska Range or one of the other ranges we go over. You could be on the Yukon River, which is at some points a mile across and just magnificent. If it's the night, um, you may not be able to see anything except for the stars or more often the northern lights. So we're always out in the spectacular nature and the wilderness. And no matter how tired you are, no matter how cold you are, you are able to appreciate that. But I think most important is that you are out there with your 12, 16, 20 best friends, the dogs. And to see this group of dogs that, as in my case, because I raise all my own, uh, I have raised each one of them, I have trained them, I know each little personality, I know what they're thinking as they're going down the trail, each individually, they're all thinking different thoughts. To me, today, there is nothing that brings me more joy than to see a 16-dog team trotting down this trail with just as much power as you could uh, muster. Uh, it's just beautiful scene to me. However, I will say the lack of sleep is a very difficult part to overcome. It's the only thing I never <laughs> look forward to. What's the funniest thing that's ever <laughs> happened to you out there? Well, I love this story. <laughs> Because of the uh, lack of sleep, we do get to the point of hallucinations. And I have learned now to take little 15-minute catnaps and how to stay mostly in control of these hallucinations. But my first years of racing, I was horrible. And I had no idea how to sleep. I would usually go for two or three days without one single nap, and then I'd sleep for five hours. So I was not doing it right. And at one point in the race, um, I was traveling along, and there was four of us on the sled, and we each had a job. My job was to lean to the right if the sled would tip to the left. Another person's was to lean to the left if the sled would tip to the right. One person was supposed to use the brake, and I never did figure out what the fourth person was doing on the sled. But here we were going uh, between Ruby, Slatina Crossing and Ruby, over these huge hills, 
and I was doing a really good job at my job. And every time the sled would lean to the left, I'd lean to the right. But when it would do the other, they weren't doing a good job at all, and we'd tip over. And I would get my face completely full of snow, and you would think that this would wake me up out of this. I would throw the sled back up and yell at these non-existent people, and off we'd go around. I later found out by looking at my watch that this went on for almost seven hours. The way it stopped was I was going along and I fell off the sled in my hallucination. And the team was running away from me. There's a rope that drags behind the sled we call the snub line. Well, I grabbed the snub line and I'm yanking it and yelling them, whoa, 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 whoa. And they're disappearing off into the distance. And I finally woke up because I had not a hold of the snub line. Indeed, I had lost the sled, and we have a headlight that we use on our head. It has a cord on it. I had a hold of the cord, and I was yanking my head up and down, yelling, whoa. And I woke up to see my team disappearing into the wilderness, and I said, this is bad. <laughs> this is not good. Luckily, they were as tired as I was. I told them to whoa. They stopped. I went up there, and we camped, and I slept. But it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite amazing. <laughs> what exhaustion can do. And quite amazing that a person that exhausted can successfully steer a sled, command the dogs, and stay on the trail, which isn't a beautifully groomed path. Get that out of your mind. It goes over boulders and fallen trees and bare ice. It twists and turns through mountain gorges and open water. The open water is perhaps the thing we fear the most, or the thin ice. A less common danger, but nonetheless very serious, is uh, the moose. The wolves are simply curious. They never cause us any problems. The bears, except for the polar bears, are in hibernation, and most of the polar bears are much further north than where we race. So the only danger for us really is the moose and the buffalo, but we only run through one herd of buffalo on the way to Nome. (laughs) But uh, the moose, generally run away from a dog team. But occasionally they will somehow feel entrapped and they feel they have to run towards you and in essence through the dog team. Um, That has probably happened to me three or four times. No serious injuries to the dogs, none to me. Um, Only minor injuries. However, in uh, 1985, I was traveling in the lead of the race and alone at night on a trail and ran into what turned out to be an obviously crazed moose. She was starving to death. There was something wrong with her. She was skin and bones. And rather than run away, um, she turned to charge the team. Again, I thought she would just run through me. I stopped the team, threw the sled over. She had plenty of room to pass us along the trail. She came into the team and stopped. She just started stomping and kicking the dogs. Uh, She charged at me. For 20 minutes, I held her off with my axe and with my parka, waving it in her face. Um, And finally, another musher came along and we shot her. But not before she had killed two of my dogs and she injured 13 others, leaving me to scratch from the race. She bruised my shoulder. We went and spent the next two weeks at a veterinary hospital instead, saving the lives of the injured dogs. So 
these things are possible, but this is very atypical. Uh, mostly, the moose will cause little trouble, but these are some of the dangers that we have to be prepared for. Is that the worst thing that's ever happened to you? That is definitely the worst thing as far as that it ended with tragedy. However, my close calls, my encounters with open water have been much more severe and have been much closer to death for me and or the team than uh, this was, like for the full team. Um, this one um, ended very tragically, but I gotta say, I'm a lot more scared of open water than I am of moose today. The year the moose attacked was 1985. Butcher had started that race with a solid lead and she was a favorite to win. She'd come in second twice before and everyone anticipated she would become the first woman to win an Iditarod. But that year when her dogs were killed, forcing her out of the race, she lost her chance. Another woman won and made history that year. The next year though, Susan Butcher was on fire. She didn't just win, she won in record time, and she repeated the victory in 87 and in 88, becoming the first musher to win three in a row. In 1990, she won her fourth. Before I won my first Iditarod, I was trying very hard to do so. And I had a very fast team, well-conditioned and well-trained but I kept coming in second in more races than I care to remember. And clearly some essential element was missing in, I feel it was the winning spirit and vision. And I would often finish in a race uh, an hour or a minute or a split second behind someone else, but I'd have had the strongest and fastest team. So in 1986, I learned how to pull it all together. I told myself that not only could I win, but that I deserved to win, and that I could win today. I knew before that, that I someday would win the Iditarod, but I didn't see myself as a winner today, so I often kept failing. In 1986, I lived and breathed the vision of winning the Iditarod for the full year. And I held it 11 days into the Iditarod where I was neck and neck with Joe Garney, 44 miles from the finish line. I had had less than 20 hours of sleep in 11 days. I had run up every hill between Anchorage and Nome. But Joe made a final push and passed me, gaining a two minute lead. And I was exhausted and demoralized and said to myself, well, I guess second place isn't too bad. But then through the blur of fatigue, I again remembered the vision of myself winning the 1986 Iditarod. And I knew this race could be mine alone. And so for the next 44 miles, I ran, pumped with one leg or pushed until I passed Joe and won my first Iditarod. Butcher got a lot of press attention for her accomplishments and captured the heart of the public. She's one of the reasons most Americans know about the Iditarod. That didn't always sit well with her male counterparts in the world of dog sledding. But then again, many of them were wary of her from the beginning. It was one more obstacle she had to navigate as a musher. Irv Drasnan asked whether she ever had doubts about entering the sport as a woman. 
No, <laughs> it uh, it never did occur to me that this was something a woman shouldn't do. Uh, there were no competitive women racing at that time in long distance racing. And I think I was astounded and very unhappy my first year when I found that there was some resistance from my fellow mushers because I was a woman. I did not specifically seek out to be uh, a pioneer for women. To me, um, I was always very aware that I was a woman, and I was very aware that I was the only woman being competitive. But I also saw it as that I was a human being, and that's how I wanted to be accepted. And I didn't see why people couldn't accept that right away. So it wasn't until I became accepted as well as I have now, that I realized the struggle that I did go through. The problems really began her second year in the race. The first year, she was a novelty and not much of a threat. But the next year... The next year, I advanced rapidly and was in the top 10. And immediately, hackles started coming up on the back of the neck. Um, I started getting a very different reception. Um, But they weren't discounting me yet. That didn't happen until the next year when I was in the top five. And then immediately, uh, many of my fellow mushers were saying she was lucky, it was an easy year. There was always some sort of excuse for the reason that I was doing well. In addition, I ran into all sorts of really harsh uh, criticism verbally to my face, Um, sometimes using physical acts that made it twice as difficult for me to continue down the trail in uh, the manner that I should be able to compared to what they would do with a fellow musher. The next year when I continued to do as well and the following years I met with opposition in that the many of the male mushers formed a group against me and worked as a group against me, strategically um, planning uh, their strategies to ruin my strategy for the race. And it was somewhere in there that I saw that in order for me to win the race, I had to be much better than they were. I didn't have to be just a little bit better than the best male. He could win being just a little bit better, and they just weren't going to let me win being that much better. So it was then that I said, well, then I take that challenge and I will become that much better and I can become that much better and I think I know how. And I started working on it and uh, it it did come true. Uh, I have to count here. Okay, so it wasn't until my eighth race that I won. And so then, yes, I think there perhaps was starting to be an inkling of self-doubt. I knew I could win. Um, And I had great faith, or of course I never could have finally pulled it all together. But when the papers would say, and my fellow mushers would say, she'll never be able to win because of such and such, you know, this does work on you mentally. And you combat it and you say it's not true, but to constantly hear it, it's very difficult. And then the other thing is individually, all these men that I speak of that jointly would often be against me were individually my good friends. And so that was very painful 
to have good friends, um, be fine the rest of the year and treat you as a friend and yet when they would get into a racing situation and get in this buddy system, I was out. I wasn't even welcome to share the campfires with them. So it was tough. There was a real loneliness in it for me. When the first sweet taste of victory came, she was able to enjoy it and the recognition of her male rivals without bitterness, remarkably. Yes, I think by the time I had won my first race, there was no doubt in anybody's mind my ability or my dog's ability. And I think I do have the respect. Uh, I, in some ways, don't, well, I really don't blame anybody for the problems we all have to grow. And as I had to make the move into becoming uh, a woman uh, very dominant in the sport, um, it was a long growing process for me. It was also a growing process that all the men had to go through too. So I have never found fault with any individual for the problems that they had dealing with me entering the sport. There was one man she encountered early in her racing life who had few doubts about her perseverance or her spirit seeing her through. It's a great story that starts with a debt. After I had been racing, I guess about four years, um, Joe Reddington Sr., the father of the Iditarod, and I went and took a dog team to the summit of Mount McKinley. And we had just come down from the mountain, and um, a young man who was a lawyer um, working for a native corporation was helping them to market some fish and other fish bait and for perhaps dog mushing food. So he came to Joe and I and he said, would you like any of this dog food? Well, we both, at that time, I think I owned 76 dogs and Joe owned somewhere around 250. And so we dove in and both ordered 10 tons. And I went and picked it up and threw it in the back of the truck and just jumped into the driver's seat to drive off. And uh, the young man, David Munson said, how are you gonna pay for this? And I said, well, my sponsor's gonna pay you. And absolutely in reality, I had just gotten a $15,000 sponsor, my first big sponsor in my life. And I was thrilled. Took off for Eureka, which has no phone, no communications, nothing, um, for the winter with this dog food. And about a month later, I mushed to a telephone in Manly Hot Springs to call my sponsor to find out that they had decided not to give me one penny that somebody, some higher echelon than what had okayed it, had put the nigs on it. So um, I wrote David a letter and said, I can't pay you, but I will pay you, and it'll be in small increments, and it'll get to you. Well, Joe Reddington had backed up his truck, taken his 10 tons, and David had said, how are you going to pay me? And Joe said, well, I don't have any money, but I have a lot of dogs, and I will loan you a dog team to run the Iditarod. Well, David's a lawyer, <laughs> but he's an adventurer totally at heart, and he said, sure, I'll take the dog team. And so he ran the Iditarod that year. And I was good friends with Joe, and I was watching Joe train this guy. Um, we were 600 miles apart, but I was kind of seeing it through letters and things. And I thought this Dave Munson was a bad news guy. He didn't know anything about dogs. This was ridiculous. And despite not knowing much, he did extremely well in the race. And I went, hmm, 
maybe there's more to this guy than I know. So we continued to become better friends. And finally, years later, because we um, lived 650 miles apart, long after I had repaid him, we got married. So. When Susan Butcher moved to Alaska with a disdain for city life, she thought she could live without other humans. But one of the things she said she learned from years of loneliness in the Alaskan bush was that she did indeed need people. At the time of this interview in 1991, she and her husband Dave were thinking about starting a family, and she wasn't exactly sure how that was going to affect her mushing life. But she was clearly pondering what would come next. That year, she'd lost the Iditarod, came in third, even though many people said at the time she had the best dog team in the history of the race. She had prepared harder than ever, and she had that winning vision. But Mother Nature threw every curve that she could. Butcher and her dogs were in the lead and broke trail for the rest of the teams for almost 500 miles through windstorms and fresh snow. So I still reached the village of White Mountain over one hour in front of my closest competitor. And this is 77 miles from Nome. From there, I went first into the eye of an Arctic blizzard and I struggled for six hours losing and regaining the trail until finally, because of the trust I have developed in my dogs, I knew that I could not ask them for any more. So I lost. I feel that because I challenge myself so often, sometimes I will fail. This is, to me, the essence of competition, that there will be both winners and losers but I have great faith in myself that I will turn this loss into something positive. One more step up the ladder, not perhaps just to running the Iditarod, but to perhaps the next step in my life. First, there are many lessons to be learned. And I think one of my favorite lessons is best summed up in the words of an old Athabascan Indian who told me, there are many hard things in life, but there is only one sad thing and that is giving up. Susan Butcher never did, not when she was pursuing her dreams, not when she was being hammered by the elements during a race, and not when she was diagnosed with leukemia in 2005. She had failures, defeats, but she never, ever thought about quitting. No, absolutely not. I do not know the word quit. Um, Either I never did or I have somehow abolished it from my language. Um, if you allowed it to enter your mind, I think during the worst times when you are so exhausted and so cold and the dogs may be getting tired towards the end of a four or five hour run, you'd quit. You would. You have to see only that you are going into this specific race, whether it be a 300 or a 500, a thousand mile race or an individual training run you are going to complete this. And then if some force such as the moose becomes so great, then it's gonna be obvious that you should quit. So you can't think about quit. But I really, I just don't think it even enters my mind. I am always so keyed up for the challenge. When Susan Butcher died eight months after her diagnosis, her husband, Dave Monson, said she lived more in 51 years than some people do in 100. 
After this interview in 1991, she raced three more times. When she retired from the Iditarod, they moved to the remote town of Eureka, where they had their two daughters, Tekla and Shushana. And that's where they started Trailbreaker Kennel. Monson still operates it today in Fairbanks. The Trailbreaker motto is mush with a happy face. The 2019 Iditarod, entering day nine as this podcast posts, has the largest number of women mushers in history, nearly a third, and it's still one of the only elite sporting events where athletes compete together without regard to gender. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you, as always, for listening. <laughs>